Good morning. This morning we're going to be in Acts 23. I was supposed to preach last week, um, and because Cherish actually got COVID, I was not able to be here. So if you didn't see me last week, that is the reason why. She is now way out of her quarantine time. She, she had symptoms for the first time two weeks ago, so she's good now. Um, but we sadly weren't able to be here, and that was a whole debacle um, that just unraveled right at the end of the week. So it was awesome that Daniel was able to um, preach, and it was an amazing message. And I was like, man, I feel bad that he had to write a sermon. So kind of like last minute. But, you know, it totally worked out. I think that was God's word for us last week. It was beautiful. And that leads right into Acts 23, where we're continuing this trial. Um, have you ever been in a place where you know your parents or your spouse uh, would not approve? Potentially, right? Okay, so for me, this place is Fresh Time. Have you guys ever been to Fresh Time? Okay. So uh, whenever Cherish and I were dating, I would go to, we would go to Fresh Time because uh, when you're dating, you constantly just have to like find places to meet up, right? So sometimes it would just be like convenient after work and we would walk around Fresh Time and sometimes we would get sushi and sometimes we would uh, just literally walk around and look at the clearance stuff and see what, <laughs> what unique food they would have. So this is something that we started doing and now I continue um, sometimes after work. There's like an hour break where Cherish isn't off and I'm off. And I'll be like, ah, I'm just going to go to Fresh Time and walk around. Um, but... I know whenever she calls and asks where I am that she is going to be very disapproving because typically I walk out of there with things that are like not really home runs as far as food goes. <laughs> I'm looking at the clearance stuff and I'm like, oh, look, some plant-based ice cream that's clearanced off. And it's like it never turns out well. So she's very disapproving of whenever I go to the store. Um, Paul does not find himself in the wrong place as I, I am often found in the wrong place, but rather right in the middle of God's plan, affirmed by Jesus himself telling him so. And he's been tried in a court of sorts for going to the Gentiles and defiling the temple with the Gentile. The issue has come to a boiling point, and here the anger and outrage bubbles up and runs over. But the amazing thing that I want us to look at today is how Paul is led by the Spirit through this trial and then confirmed in his actions and his bad situation by Jesus. So I want us to start out by looking at Acts 23, 1 through 10. Now, I want you to remember that Paul is in the middle of this trial. He's carrying out God's mission that he's given to him. Jesus sent him on this mission. Um, and he tells his testimony of how he, he got to minister uh, to Gentiles and um, how this, he, this resulted in his passion, his compa God's compassion being shown to him, which then resulted in him going to the Gentiles and showing the compassion of God to them. And he, he tells of his repentance, how he used to think this exact same way, and he turned because Jesus himself has revealed this to him. And then, upon this word, the crowd is enraged and ready to kill him. They're yelling out you know, that they, they want him to be killed. And Paul um, hasn't done it this, up to this point, but his whole life has been a Roman citizen. And it's here in this particular um, problem that he pulls the I'm a Roman citizen card. 
and that saves his life. They, they can't treat him like they would some other person who's not a part of the, uh, who is not a, a part of the Roman Empire, but instead they have to give him a fair trial. So um, he is saved from this situation, and now he's testifying to roughly 21 of the most respected and important Jewish leaders, some by respect of the Jewish people, some by their ties to the Roman government, and we'll talk about that more. But 21, uh, it's called the Sanhedrin, and here he is, he is giving his chance, given a chance one more time to back down from the radical things that he's saying. And it says in verse 1 of Acts 23, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience, conscience to this day. As this high priest, Ananias, ordered those um, standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Um, then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by, vi by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. Descended from Pharisees, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, for your word and how the stories of your people in the past give us direction here in the present. That you speak to us through your spirit even now to give us wisdom um, to inspire us and to lead us um, into your calling on our lives. And I pray that you would help us to, to know that as you graciously reveal it, um, as we're faithful to seek it out and to be led by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul, as you can see in this passage, never backed down. He was confident in his calling. He was confident in what he, what he was called to do. The very first thing he says is, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. This kind of, influence, this kind of confidence flows from knowing your position to be right. If you're not sure if you're right, you will not say these kinds of things in this kind of situation. You'll back down. Um, I just got finished reading Walden and On Civil Disobedience by Henry David Thoreau. And Henry David Thoreau was a writer and teacher in the 19th century um, here in America. And he famously did not believe that America was just in its engagement in the Mexican-American War. And so he put his money where his mouth was, and he refused to pay the poll tax that was imposed on all the citizens of Concord, Massachusetts, and for this was thrown in prison. So he spends all of one day in the prison, and then somebody who supported him and thought he was a great guy 
paid the tax for him, which he hated, um, but then he was released from prison. Um, so he was willing to put his money where, the, where his mouth was, right, and to actually follow through with going to prison on principle, that he knew it was not right for him to support a war that he did not believe in. And he had a friend named Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a part of the same movement, another writer, and he, he actually built his cabin, his famous cabin from Walden's Pond, on Emerson's land. And Emer there's a story that goes, and it's half legend, half true, who knows, um, but the principle remains within this story. So listen to the story. Um, Thoreau is in prison for not paying the tax on principle. Emerson comes to visit, um, and he, he sees that his friend Thoreau is in prison. And he looks inside the jail, jail cell, and he says, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau replies, what are you doing out there? So he, he really believed, all that to say, he really believed in this, right? He believed that Emerson was wrong to be out there paying the tax and that he was right to be in here not paying the tax, right, in, in prison. He thought that it was worth it. He was confident in what he was doing. Thoreau wouldn't go to jail for something uh, he held as a, a flippant opinion, all right? If this had to do with, like, whether Coke or Pepsi were better, then he would probably not go to jail for that, right? But because he believed that this was a moral thing, he was making a moral decision here, he was willing to follow through. Um, Paul would not continue down this deathly path that he's on unless he was at peace with his creator, living in step with God's calling. He would have caved many times before, or at least now, in front of the Jews of Jerusalem, the, the most important leaders of his brothers and sisters um, in the flesh. They're right here in front of him. If, he, if this were just a preference thing, he would have backed down. But he knew what he believed, and he knew that it was right, because he had seen Jesus. This is also true for us. Unless we know God through Jesus and are firmly rooted in his calling for our lives, we will cave when we find things uncomfortable. The choice is clear. Hold to faith in God, who became man, took your sins upon himself, suffered and died for them, and conquered death and invites us to share in the same resurrection, living confidently in him, or take the path of belief that really reveals itself to just be a preference and caves when things are hard. When you know the positions of Jesus are not favorable and, and you're uncertain, sticky points that are at odds with the present age become opportunities to cave. And this, this comes up today in the world of Christianity. There are people who have caved on issues of sexuality, of entertainment, of rest, of money. Instead of firm resolve in Jesus' calling, we give up our witness in favor of comfort. We, we take part in the convenient and the practical instead of what is good and true. It, it is where we can stake our entire lives and truly all else is but sinking sand, bound to lead to shipwreck, to shame, to fear and discontent. If we truly believe that Jesus has risen and that this is the truth and that the way that he has called us to is the way that leads to life, that is the, it's the way that we were created to live, then we should be willing to stake our entire lives on this. If this is just a preference, then we're going to back down. We're not talking about preferences here. We're talking about what is true. We're talking about what is good. 
Jesus inspires firm resolve that if rejected will leave us in the odd position of Judas, who knew Jesus and teetered the line of firm belief, but in the end chose an easier path. This he so regretted that he took his own life whenever he recognized what he had done. So the first thing we notice is that there is no middle position for Paul. There's not a, uh, well, maybe I could get along with both groups and get out of this situation. He's firmly resolved that this is Jesus's calling. His faith and confidence in Jesus calls, er, of Jesus's call leads to being hit in the face and later in this passage to a coup of religious leaders hiring a bunch of bandits or whoever to go and murder him, right? That's, that's the plan. Like this is, this is what this kind of standing for truth and good leads to. This is not something where Paul was seeking a middle position so that everybody could just be happy. Like, oh, can't we all just get along? He stood for what was true and good. Ultimately, um, this leads to a long journey to the capital of the empire to go to trial for the stir that he caused among the Jews. Not a road of least resistance, but one of clear hardship. And this was the clear path for Paul. He was compelled to act and be confident, um, not in pride or riches or glory, but instead in his faithfulness on a hard road. He could hang his hat knowing that he had done what the very God that the council claimed to follow and worship had told him to do. He was proclaiming the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham long ago. And if the Jews couldn't see it, that was their problem. He would be faithful, come what may. So the question for us is, what are you doing? What are we doing? Are we firm in our relationship with Jesus? With the calling that he's placed on our lives? Or will we cave under pressure and seek a path that leads to everyone being happy and content, but sacrifices truth? Will you place your confidence in man or Jesus? So to no surprise here, Paul chooses the latter. He chooses Jesus. He's staunch in his faith. But we also need to see that he, he doesn't act with reckless abandon, but with wisdom. He understands who he is talking to, and he continues to establish common ground with them in order that they may know Jesus. He uses this opportunity of a really bad situation not to sacrifice on truth, but to proclaim the truth in a wise way. Paul finds himself, himself in the throes of vitriol hatred. Religious men elected as leaders of the people of Israel are so angry that the high priest orders Paul to be hit in the face. Paul recognizes that the Sadducees are too far away from the truth to be convinced. They, they don't believe in the resurrection um, and at this point are just angry enough that they're, they're going to resort to physical violence in order to try to persuade, <laughs> um, which is kind of like the, it's like the last, the last resort for someone not winning an argument just to hit you, right? <laughs> it's like the, the kids in school who were like, well, I don't know, just hit. Like that's, that's going to solve the problem. So that's where we've got this half of the Sanhedrin, the um, Sadducees, whereas the Pharisees, he knows, are a bit closer to the truth. He himself is a Pharisee, and he, he sees himself not as someone outside of the Pharisees, but rather someone who is living in the fulfillment of what the Pharisees believed, that the Messiah truly did come, and that the, the, Jew, the Jews' religion has been fulfilled 
in Jesus. He sees, sees this not as a, a different truth or you need to convert from Judaism, but you need to realize that this is the fulfillment of Judaism. And in the mix, in the mix of the hatred, the issue uh, that, that he's here for, which if we remember, is because like the, the last thing that happened was that they thought he, he had brought a Gentile into the temple and defiled the temple. The, but this is becoming murky. Why Paul is here. And he reminds them of the real reason. Have you ever made, been in an argument uh, with, a, with a friend or spouse that has kind of followed the same trajectory? It maybe started with one thing and ends in a completely different place from where you started. A simple issue morphs into a dramatic argument that has to do with your integrity and, and like, what, like way deeper things. For Cherish and I, Cherish said I might have shared this before, I actually don't remember, but um, there, was, there was an issue that we had whenever we were engaged. Um, and now we're, we're a perfectly happy married couple that never <laughs> argues. Um, no, we, whenever we were engaged, um, Cherish had come over and I think we were maybe making cookies before a game night, I think is what was going on. Um, and she needed to use some milk and she, she looked at the date on the milk and it's expired, and I was like, it still smells fine, though, <laughs> which I don't know where you guys are in that camp, but <laughs> uh, so I'm very much on the side of, like, if, if you don't see mold, and if it doesn't smell bad, then it's okay, <laughs> and Cherish was very much on the other side of, like, this is getting close to the expired date, which means we can't use it, right? Um, so this, this is like a, this is a small issue to be really honest, but what it turned into was an argument about, it was milk and it was cheese and it was bread and it was the mold that was on the cheese and on the bread and turned out all of this was bad at this point, but that's beside the point. What this really led to is, are you going to be prideful and firmly defend something that's completely wrong or are you going to be willing to change your opinion on this? which is a big test uh, that most people go through at some point leading up into marriage or in dating or whatever. There's a test, right, that comes, are you going to be able to be humble in these situations where you disagree? Or are you just going to stand firm and never back down and I'm a, I'm a man, I'm right? Um, so that's, that's what the issue was really about. But what it looked like on the surface was milk, bread, and cheese. That wasn't the issue. And what Paul gets at here is, man, there are some people really mad with Paul. They, they really hate him at this point because he's, he's brought this Gentile into, supposedly brought the Gentile into the temple. But this isn't really about the Gentile supposedly being in the temple. This was circumstantial. What, what's really at the heart of this is that Paul is taking the, the Jewish beliefs and saying that they have been fulfilled, that the the thing that they have long awaited has come and everything has changed. And there's a whole group of people that don't believe that this is the case. And what this has to do with for Paul is the resurrection. So Paul sees that the water has been muddied, that the trial has devolved into punches and verbal condemnation, and he has even taken part in this after he's punched, which kind of anybody would, but he calls him a whitewashed wall, or he calls him this wall that is really crumbling on the inside, but on the outside, they plastered it, so it looks pretty good. But it, it's just about to fall apart. So he calls the high priest this whitewashed wall, doesn't realize he's the high priest, and this is another red flag. But Paul quickly corrects and recognizes, okay, guys, we're getting way 
far away from the issue. This isn't what's at stake. This is about the resurrection. So Paul brings the real issue back to the forefront. Paul knew the room, and he knew the beliefs of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, could recognize Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of the law, if they could see that Jesus was the fulfillment of the resurrection prophecies, which they believed in. The Old Testament prophecies had, had spoken of an act of God that would undo even the final enemy of death. So we see this in the passage, just to, to remind you, because it's been a while since we read it. Um, he said, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, my, brother, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand in this trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So Paul knows that the, the uh, Pharisees believe in the resurrection. And so he, he sees this as the central issue. And as we read 1 Corinthians, as many of you have, you see that he, he's willing to say that this is really the sum of our faith hinges on this issue. If you believe in the resurrection, then our faith is true. It is good. Like if Jesus rose from the dead, our faith is not in vain. But if, if he didn't, what are we doing here? This is pointless. He was willing to say that. This is the issue that so matters. And why is this? Looking at the Old Testament in Isaiah 26, starting in verse 19, it says, your dead shall live Together with my dead body, they shall rise. Awake and sing, you will dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also will also disclose her blood and will no, no more cover her slain. There's going to be a resurrection. And this is, a, this is a prophecy that was given during the time of exile. This is something they would have read in this time whenever they were, they were away from Jerusalem. It doesn't look like there's any way that God is going, going to continue to act in this earth, on this earth. And the prophets saw way off that there was going to be a time whenever the resurrection would take place. And God, all God's people would dwell in the new heavens and the new earth that we just read or sang about that God would return and bring his, gather his people to himself. And they would reign forever. And they, they saw this as an event that would take place at some point, right? Ezekiel 37 famously talks about the Valley of Dry Bones, that there's this, this Valley of Dry Bones that he is told to, the, Ezekiel is told to prophesy over. And the word of the Lord goes out, and these, these bones take on flesh and sinews and muscles and, and then skin, and there they are. It's a fully developed human being, like this whole group of human beings that have resurrected from the dead. All right, and this, this is often talk, used to talk about salvation, but ultimately this is also a, a big piece of the, the hope of the resurrection, that one day this is what would happen, that God could undo even death. And they, they saw this as an event that would take place for all of Israel. And Cherish didn't like this illustration. We'll see how it works. Um, <laughs> this is weird. But guys, I want you to hold out your hand with two fingers. And I want you to point forward, okay? To where, and then close one eye. This is, this is a little strange. But then look at your finger. And you should be able to see just one finger. Do you guys see that? Okay. But then I want you to bring it closer. And you can see that there's another finger, right? 
Okay, do you guys see that? All right, this is how the prophets saw the resurrection. From a long way off, they looked, and there was only one finger. There was only one event that was going to take place. And that was the resurrection of all of Israel to be united with God. But as, as the event actually unfolded in the Gospels, and we get up close to it, what we see is it's a twofold event, beginning with Jesus and ending with all of God's people. And so this, this resurrection, the, the fact that the resurrection would take place was secured by the fact that that first part has happened, but the second is yet to, hum, yet to come. But our hope is secured in Jesus, that in his resurrection, we have the hope of resurrection, that this is not the end. So the Pharisees recognized the hope of the resurrection, but they didn't see that all the dead had been raised. So what Paul is trying to get them to see is that if Jesus has raised from the dead, then the beginning of the resurrection has taken place. What Paul would call the first fruits of the resurrection, the very beginning. What, what happened to Jesus will happen to all of God's people. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 16, it says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, this life, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the beginning of an act that will end in all of God's people being resurrected on that final day to be united with God forever. And that's the hope that we have. And for Paul, this is the central issue. If it happened to Jesus, then God is going to save all of his people through this same thing. Through the power of Jesus and what happened to him. This is the root of the trial. This is what it's all about. Now for you, the resurrection is probably not the, the issue that you argue with other people about. Uh, for Paul, this is what it was. Um, however, I think with the issues that we face, the disagreements that we have with other people, I think typically there's something behind the issue at hand. Just like it's not about milk and cheese and bread, Whenever Cherish and I had that argument, it was really about my pride and my ability to be humble. Whenever we face disagreements, sometimes it can, it can seem like it's about the issue that we're currently talking about. And it's about uh, you just broke that really insignificant item. Um, and why are you so mad? It was just a spoon. But it's not about the spoon. There's something deeper behind that. And being led by the Spirit of God and living in his wisdom is to be able to see behind that. Why is my spouse angry at me right now? What is this really about? Because it's not about the spoon. <laughs> People don't really care about spoons that much. What, what is the issue behind the issue? And I think like Paul, we're called to discernment. We're called to have this prophetic discernment to be able to know what is going on in a given situation and to be able to analyze it. To not get caught up in the moment, swept away, and just, like, you're just yelling at each other, and you don't know why you're even, like, how did this even get started? All I did was this. But rather to recognize what is the root of the disagreement. And having done exactly that, the courtroom splits. The Pharisees 
And the scribes, on one side, the scribes come out of nowhere. Apparently, they were in the audience or something. But they come out of nowhere, and they're ready to defend Paul. And I imagine this great meeting as if this very room were to, everybody got up in a, a big disagreement, and this side's yelling at this side, and this, this side's yelling at this side. And it's, it's quite the stir. Paul here in the middle, having been testifying. And the, the Roman guard who was there, um, kind of presiding over the trial, making sure things didn't go awry, says, things have gone awry, Paul's about to be torn apart, and he grabs Paul and takes him away, all right, so saves him from near death again, uh, the trial is now over, not much of a hearing here, and we have the, the split courtroom, we have no resolution, we definitely don't have Paul, like, we, it's not the happy ending that we want, it's not Paul saying, and here's the hope of the resurrection, and then they're like, wow, we missed this, and they all believed, and a new church was started there in Jerusalem. That's not what happened. What we have instead is a very terrible situation that Paul finds himself in. Paul has started churches around the ancient world. He's given his life to preach the truth of the gospel. He was a faithful servant of Jesus. He had even gathered a collection of money for the church in Jerusalem. From all these churches that he started, he's been asking for a collection so that he can support them during a famine. And against the counsel of so many people who said, don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to get hurt. This is not going to be good for you. Against their counsel, he is confident in God's mission and he sallies forth into the maelstrom. He would be faithful to go to the temple and the sacrifice during the feast so that some of his brothers would be able to follow Jesus because he's going to continue to follow the Jewish law so that he's not a stumbling block to his brothers and he's doing everything right. He does things the right way with a generous servant's heart, depending on God's grace. And here, again, he's about to be killed by the people. Tried in a court, given a hearing before the people that he wants to talk to and to convince and tell them good news. And again, he's shut down. They want him to die. Needless to say, this can't feel good. Paul is down and probably confused as to why he's been led into this awful position. And it's here that something special happens. In Acts 23.11, it says, But the following night the Lord stood by, by him and said, and this is Jesus, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Now this is not the standard way that God speaks to his people. Like, if by show of hands, how many have heard Jesus' voice audibly tell them that they are doing the right thing? Right, That's a, that is a handful of people. That is not to say that it is impossible that Jesus would ever do that, right? Jesus is just as capable as he was 2,000 years ago to do that. But that is not the rule. We have very few occasions of that throughout scripture, right? But here, what we want to notice is that Jesus speaks encouragement and confirmation to Paul in this trying time. Notice that Jesus is aware of, God's plight, uh, of Paul's plight. Paul isn't in a situation that Jesus is unaware of. Jesus is right there in the middle of it. He knows what Paul is going through. Jesus is not silent. And Jesus is going to use a terrible set of circumstances, by any estimation, to get Paul on the new missionary grounds. Time and time again, this happens. But I can imagine that Paul's own letter to the Roman church, Roman churches is now coming up as a question mark in his head. Did I really mean what I wrote there? That God takes all things that happen 
to those who, who love him and are called to it according to his purpose for our good? Is this really going to be worked out for my good? Can this really turn out in any way that's going to bring God glory? But this is what God does. He's going to, to use a terrible situation for Paul's good and for God's glory. And this is often the storyline story of TV shows and of movies. Um, Cherish and I uh, just randomly decided to go to the theater. And we, I don't think we've been to the theater in years. <laughs> and we, she had a gift card. And we went and saw the animated film um, Ron's Gone Wrong, uh, which is about robots and such. And it's a, it's a silly movie. But um, this is a basic storyline that we see in a lot of movies. Okay? So that... Things go wrong, but then they turn out to be even better than they could have been, all right? Barney in this, in this movie is a little boy who's an awkward middle schooler, um, and he wants to fit in with all the other kids, typical storyline. And all the other kids have this robot, and the, the robot is supposed to be their best friend and also help them make friends. And so Ron is the only one at school who has this weird family um, that, like, it looks like they're organic gardeners and they've got like chickens and goats and all this stuff. And Cherish was watching it and she was like, that's going to be us. Um, <laughs> that's going to be our kid, the awkward kid at school without the phone. Uh, so, but we're, we're watching this and we're seeing that, you know, you feel bad for this boy, Barney. Like he doesn't have the robot like everybody else. And the, then Barney gets the robot for his birthday, but it's not a great robot. It's one that's been damaged, and his dad kind of picks up in a back alley and like pays for it. And he gets it, and it doesn't operate like all the other robots. So this, this robot has some major problems, and he's ready to take it back to the store. But then, even though it wasn't supposed to, it was not doing what all the other robots did that made everybody so happy, it actually turns out to be his best friend. And Ron has no friends. And he, he comes to, like, love this robot. And it starts to connect him to other kids at his school through the, like, silly situations that the robot gets him in. And this bad situation of him not having a robot, and then he gets the one, but then it's not a good robot. The, the silly situations that the robot gets him in leads him to becoming friends with other people. And this, this is something that feels good for us to watch. And this is the storyline of a lot of TV shows and movies because it's something that mirrors the gospel. It's something, it's a story that we love. It's a story that we like to see played out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's not robots. Sometimes it's Star Wars. Sometimes it's whatever. There are, there are thousands of ways that this story has been told, but all that they're doing is they're riffing off of these, the picture that we get of the gospel. And that's why it feels good to us. It says this, uh, the, the gospel proclaims that we are in a mess of sin and brokenness. That things are not as they should be. This isn't what we were designed for. But in God's grace, he enters the mess. And he suffers with us in Jesus. And then he dies, which seems like the worst possible ending to this story. But then, death, the final enemy, that, is, that all humanity is bound to face, is defeated by the unjust death that seemed, it seemed would end Jesus' good work. Instead, it becomes the beginning of a redemption that reaches to every person who follows Jesus. That each and every one of us who place our faith in Christ are no longer bound to our brokenness, but instead led to new life in the love of the Father. And for Paul, who has enjoyed the riches of God's grace in Jesus, 
He simply waits and he hopes. I can imagine that this is what Paul was doing. It says the following night. So he actually had to go through, like, he, he's sitting with that situation of wanting to be killed. Everybody hates him for one night. Then it's the next night. So a whole day he's been thinking about this. But I would imagine that these practices are still here. That he, he's contemplating what God would have him do. What is God calling him to in this season? How can he be faithful? And it's in this time that Jesus speaks to him. It's in this time that it's revealed that this is not a period, but a semicolon. That Paul's story will continue. And this is the beautiful thing that Jesus does. Though it is exceptional that Jesus would audibly speak, the words of scripture are readily available to us. And they are, the, the words of scripture are the words that the Holy Spirit uses to speak to us in our situations and to speak life in, into our, our brokenness, into our sorrows. That is how God speaks to us. And we see this illustrated in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, and he, he makes what seems to be an error whenever he quotes the Old Testament. It says in Hebrews 3, 7, that the Holy Spirit says, and there's, there's a quote from the Old Testament proving that Jesus is the great high priest and the fulfillment of stuff, but it says, which I'm, a, I'm an English teacher, um, so I get that this isn't everybody's jam, but that's the wrong tense. It seems like the wrong tense. That's the Old Testament. That, that was said a long time ago, right? God said that a long time ago. But what, it, what Hebrews tells us is that the Holy Spirit says. This is intentional on the part of the author of Hebrews. And that God did not say a bunch of things in the past, but he continues to speak to us in the present moment through Scripture. He says, the Holy Spirit is speaking as we seek him in the Bible. The words of scripture are alive and active. And he is ready to speak to us in our lives, in our present moment, through the Bible. We must not neglect to pray and meditate on God's word in order to hear from God. Because while the situation with Paul is really cool, and most of us would, if we had to choose one or the other, it would be the one where we're just laying in bed and then all of a sudden Jesus audibly speaks to us. That is not the rule. The typical way that God has spoken to his people throughout all of history is by the words that he has revealed. And that's our choice on whether or not we hear him. So he will speak in as much as we seek his voice. But the real question is, could Jesus stand next to you, as he did to Paul, even, even if, say, this did happen, right? That, that you're in bed after a hard week, and Jesus appears right next to you. Would he be able to say what he said to Paul? Would he be able to say, cheer up, you've been really faithful, keep going, I'm going to use this for, for my good? Or would he find you looking at images that degrade humans and her relationships? Would he find you taking to the internet with your issues? Would he find you reading self-help, or worse yet, simply airing your dirty laundry on social media? 
What do you find you distracting yourself with yet another TV series that's not going to fill that void? <laughs> what do you find you trying to fill, fill the void with the latest news? To find out what, be current and be up to date and watch the news for the third time today. What do you find you angry with others because you're unable to see the root of the issue in your own life? Or would he appear next to you and say, hey, cheer up. You have been faithful and I'm going to use this for my good. Some of you might be thinking, well, I've already blown it because the answer is no. <laughs> uh, but I want, you to be, I want you to realize the past of Paul. The first time that Jesus showed up in his life was not as happy of a situation. Jesus didn't show up and say, Paul, you're doing a great job. You just keep going. Cheer up. Instead, he said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus doesn't come to Paul and condemn him, as kind of we would think, if we're doing the wrong thing, what would Jesus say? All right, he, he appears here at night. I'm, I'm do, not doing the right thing. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to beat me over the head. He's going to condemn me. But what he does to Paul is, is he, he asks a question. Why are you persecuting me? And he, he's, he's not doing that so that Paul feels really bad. And then he takes his own life or he lives a life full of anxiety. But he's saying this in order that Paul can be healed by the grace of God. So, if Jesus showed up, it would not be to condemn. So let's let go of this lie. It's not the end of your story. Jesus showed up to Paul many times, and Jesus continues to speak to us through his word, through meetings like this, through his church. And what we see time and time again is that the result, the, the message of Jesus is not one that says, what are you doing? Can I approve or disapprove? Okay, you've done a good job, pat on the back. Or you've done a bad job, you're condemned. But rather an invitation to his grace. An invitation to be in his presence, to live life with him. And God works the same way today. He offers grace upon grace. And hopefully, it is the case that we can sing um, with that song, Amazing Grace. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It's only grace. It's only by God's grace.